Thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 61, Able But Unwilling. Last time, we started our coverage of the war in the Mediterranean and the desert by covering France's exit from the struggle, which left the British struggling to find a way to hold out at home and hold on to their African, Middle Eastern, and Mediterranean possessions. Because war was coming to the Mediterranean, Italy, whatever her weaknesses and limitations, had one rival removed for them by the Germans, and they could now focus their limited resources on the one remaining threat, the British. And as Great Britain was outmanned and outresourced in this theater, there was no time for any cracks in the working relationships between the political and military leaders. But cracks, more like gaping holes, was the unfortunate situation between Prime Minister Churchill and two of the three service leaders in the Mediterranean. Admiral Andrew Bourne Cunningham, a.k.a. ABC, had little respect and no use for Churchill and his meddling. And in turn, the Prime Minister did not think very much of General Archibald Wavell's aggressiveness. The Royal Air Force leader, Air Marshal Arthur Longmore, didn't have enough up-to-date aircraft of his own to make any difference to the Prime Minister or to the other two military leaders. But soon, they would all discover the dire necessity of air domination, in particular, sea-based air power. Cunningham, the acting admiral and C&C Mediterranean fleet when war broke out, was enjoying the action. He was accused, with some justification, of engineering more respect than love with his aggressiveness and making the lives of those serving below decks precarious. And it's strange that Churchill and Cunningham did not get along. The admiral was just the type of navy man Churchill would have looked for in a time of war. But the few victories away from home were given to Churchill by General O'Connor and Cunningham. And by the time the Prime Minister is ready to rid himself of this pugnacious admiral, Cunningham was by then under the protection of the Allied commander, General Dwight Eisenhower. It could have simply been chemistry between the two men, but whenever Cunningham had to reply to Churchill, who loved responses to his thoughts on paper, the admiral was direct, using fragments, and he was terse. About the prime minister, Cunningham was known to say, what a drag on the wheel of war this man is. Since 1919, British military policy had been, no war was expected for the next 10 years. Their military budgets reflected this, and not spending all that money on military matters, especially with the horrific events of World War I, still fresh in most minds, remained a popular stance. This went on until 1932, and although post-World War I Italy soon acted, as Britain had before, in obtaining and adding on to her empire, Britain felt that any clash with Italy could be avoided through diplomacy. Of course, this is not factoring in the effects of a Mussolini and his vision of a vast new Italian empire. As the 1930s went by, Britain feared Japan and Germany's rearmament over Italy's, and this seemed appropriate. The Italian people wanted peace, especially with Great Britain, but Mussolini did not, or rather, he did not care. 
Only by January 1937 did Britain formally give up on its optimistic foreign policy stance towards Italy. But by then, war was only two years away. Certainly not enough time to rearm. So diplomacy would be used on the Mediterranean power until Britain was ready for war. And by the end of 1937, the British Chiefs of Staff renewed their three-power enemy warning. They simply could not defend Britain's interests against all three, Germany, Japan, and Italy. And to emphasize Italy's new threat to Britain, it joined in with Germany and Japan in the Anti-Comintern Pact, supposedly to contain Communist Russia. And then Italy walked away from the League of Nations. Before France was forced out of the war, it had, being an ally of Britain, worked out areas of responsibility in the Mediterranean and Africa, as well as coming up with an overall strategy to defeat Germany and Italy in any future war. Because of their interests, Britain would dominate in the eastern Mediterranean as well as East Africa. They saw their center as Egypt along the Suez Canal. The French they would control the Western Med in Western Africa. Thus, having carved up their areas of responsibility, the British situation remained anything but clear. Egypt had been an independent state since 1922, and they simply did not want to trade a British master for a German or Italian one. So, a new Anglo-Egyptian Treaty of Alliance was ratified in 1936. But it is now clear to Britain that Egypt would only declare war if directly attacked. On June 10, 1940, as German forces reached the Seine west of Paris and the Renault government left the capital for tours, Mussolini proclaimed the coming announcement of war for Italy. The British ambassador, Sir Percy Lorraine, was told at 4.45 that afternoon by Foreign Minister Ciano that war would exist between their two countries at one minute past midnight. But at the declared moment, nothing happened. No Italian armies advanced, no Italian battleships left port, and no Italian bombers soared into the air. There were no Italian battle plans. But there were British plans. One hour after the official declaration of war, Admiral Cunningham took the Mediterranean fleet near Libya and then to within 120 miles of Italy's heel he encountered no Italian naval resistance. Meanwhile, other Allied ships bombed Italian ports. While this was going on, British naval aircraft bombed oil storage tanks. The one part of the Italian Navy Cunningham did respect and hoped not to see were their numerous and modern Italian submarines. But they moved out, and one of their numbers sunk the British cruiser Calypso. These engagements continued through the night as four of the eight Italian subs in the Red Sea were sunk, but demonstrating Italian preparedness and follow-through, or the lack thereof, the six Italian fleet destroyers at Massau in Italian Eritrea, just north of Ethiopia in East Africa, did not leave port. Meanwhile, Air Marshal Longmore took the fight to Italian interests from the air. He attacked ports and airfields in Libya and Eritrea. Soon the Italian cruiser San Giorgio in the Tobruk Harbor was set afire. But like General O'Connor would find, using equipment also used up equipment. 
and all three branches in the Mediterranean and in Africa were under strength and of previous generation making. So Longmore soon pulled back to conserve his forces. He had to prepare for when the larger, more modern Italian Air Force responded to his actions. And we've already covered O'Connor's initial tactical offensive against General Bertie's 10th Italian Army in Libya. O'Connor had under him Major General Krieg's 7th Armored Division with two armored brigades, each with two instead of three tank regiments, and the 7th Support Group with two motor infantry battalions and a field and anti-tank regiment as well as Major General Beresford Pierce's 4th Indian Division with, again, two instead of three Indian infantry brigades. These forces dominated the western sector of British North Africa in the early phase. On June 24th, the Franco-German armistice went into effect. This decision by the French not to fight on confused the British and Americans but they both underestimated the beaten countrymen's attachment to France, but also their anti-British feelings. General de Gaulle did his best with his shouts of, Free France! But few answered. Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia followed General Norgui and tied their fate to Vichy. Syria and French Somaliland followed suit. Only the French equatorial areas followed de Gaulle which helped the Allied troops who were sailing around the African continent to get to Egypt. Now, their route would be the following once they sailed halfway down the African west coast. They would start at Takorati on the Gold Coast, then west to Lagos of Nigeria, then to Kano further northeast to Fort Lemay in French Equatorial Africa, to then Sudan's city of Katorum, then straight north only to end up at Cairo. Mussolini was now ready to digest huge tracts of French African territory, but his senior partner needed France passive and needed to show his leniency and common desire to end the war, to which the British said, no thank you. But the British were not about to fall for this again and focused solely on the French Navy. Thus the naval action taken at Mers el-Kabir near Oran on July 3rd which we have already covered, was militarily necessary. As far as the British were concerned, they had given Hitler his answer even before he asked now that France was out of the war, which meant Britain had to think about strengthening her forces in North Africa. But now having thus declared themselves, getting reinforcements to the desert was no longer an easy thing. Only heavily reinforced fast convoys could travel to the Mediterranean. Even then, success was far from guaranteed. And if they wanted safety, that meant going around the Cape of Good Hope of Southern Africa, which meant adding on at least a month to the journey. Both the Axis and the Allies would spend July and August rethinking their entire strategic positions now that France was out of the war. Hitler was mid-stride in his contemplation of invading Russia, but had approved Operation Eagle, the struggle to win air dominance over southern Britain, whereas Mussolini was now free to pursue his dreams of an African empire. But even the mere mention of attacking Russia in the spring of 1941, for whatever reason, gave the German generals fits of anxiety. The cardinal rule 
about avoiding a two-front war was about to be broken. Many of the generals fiercely believed it was one of the main reasons for their defeat in 1918. But no one told Hitler no. So, instead of appealing to Hitler's military and political judgment, the Navy and Army staffs hoped to persuade and or distract him with other, more realistic temptations. Why not deprive the British of the Mediterranean, their possessions there, and their route to the Far East? In essence, this would take away their empire. The staffs even offered up three options to snare their leader's imagination. First, they could entice or pressure Franco of Spain into joining in an operation to close the Straits of Gibraltar to the British. Or they could reinforce Mussolini in Libya with their vaunted panzers in attacking Egypt and the Suez Canal. Lastly, they could move through the Balkans and Turkey to threaten British interests like the canal, as well as the Iraqi and Persian oil fields from the north. But these options were not as clear-cut as they appeared. Franco's response was that he would think about going along, but wanted extensive French possessions from French North Africa. But that Hitler could not go for, due to the same reasons that he had to tell Mussolini no. The German leader himself shot down the last option as he was already in his mind on his way to Russia and did not want to prematurely open up the Eastern Front. Russia, with its vastness, demanded a complete surprise attack. And as we briefly covered last time, Mussolini did not want the Germans in his area of operations. He believed, rightly, that once they were in, they would never leave. But for now, even that was academic. German resources were waiting to cross the channel once the air battle there was won. As covered during the Talk History episode with Zach Twomley, the British were not overly worried about facing the Italians alone. They had to be smart about it, even cautious. But although fighting with older, slower equipment, commanders like Cunningham, Air Marshal Longmore, and General O'Connor saw the need to go on the offensive and believed in themselves and their men. The first week of July just one week after the Franco-German armistice, British naval forces, and this is essential, working closely with the RAF and Fleet Air Arm squadrons, took out four Italian subs and three destroyers. The following week saw the adversaries' heavier vessels exchange fire, and again, the British more than held their own. Immediately, the Italian weaknesses surfaced, but so too did those of the British. The British discovered that, indeed, their older ships were slower than the more modern Italian vessels. This was compounded by their weak air reconnaissance at this stage. As for the Italians, they found that their large bomber force was relatively ineffectual in taking out British vessels due to the bombing from on high. The Italian pilots were making sure they made it home safely, but they also made sure the British would too. The Italian sailors, on the other hand, quickly discovered the relative thinness of their ship's armor. This would give them and their commanders great pause in leaving ports for the open waters. So the two adversaries were coming together, learning each other. But the British position in the desert still needed reinforcing. Given Malta's proximity to Italy, it was decided to relocate some of its stores and naval units to Alexandria 
Cunningham, assuming that the Italians would be thinking like him, would certainly attempt to scuttle this convoy while en route. So it was decided to protect this convoy from both ends of British power. Admiral James Somerville, with Force H, would try to hold the Italians' attention by sailing from Gibraltar and move against Caligari in southern Sardinia. Meanwhile, Cunningham's fleet moved west from Alexandria to play the role of close support. British subs would be used to inform both battle groups when Italian ships left their home ports. In the a.m. of July 8th, the British sub Phoenix reported that two battleships and four destroyers left port and were making their way south towards Benghazi. Now that the Italians knew of the British movement, both naval groups came under intense Italian bombing. Cunningham's flagship Warspite had 300 bombs dropped at her in 22 separate attacks. The men were soaked as the near-misses threw giant waves at them, but the ship was mostly unharmed. Somerville, sailing out of Gibraltar, did not want to press his attack too hard, as his job was diversionary. Now that the Italians were on to him and operating in force, he pulled back to conserve his capital ships. During this, Cunningham noticed that the bombing of his group was hurried, even harried, rather than accurate. He guessed, rightly, that this was not the Italians attempting to destroy his fleet, but rather they were protecting their own convoy by trying to overwhelm the British battle groups who appeared to be heading to the central Mediterranean. We now know that the Italian convoy, comprised of two battleships and six cruisers, were making for Tripoli. Cunningham, being allowed to make his own decisions, compared to commanders in the past, canceled his own convoy and made best possible speed for their base and expected destination at Taranto, located in the heel of Italy's boot. By 2.15 that afternoon of July 8th, he was between the Italian fleet and Taranto. Now, he just had to find them. But it was Vice Admiral Tovey's cruisers who came upon the Italians first. And although outnumbered and outgunned, his four six-inch guns, only had half the complement of shells due to shortages, were still going to go up against the Italians' cruisers with their eight-inch guns, as well as their battleships. But before the Italians could engage Tovey properly, Cunningham's war spike came into range and started throwing off her own salvos with her 15-inch guns. Soon, the Italian's flagship, Giulio Cesare, was hit. That was it for CNC Admiral Capioni. He sent out a message in the clear that read, Make smoke and head for the Straits of Messina. The Italians made their getaway. No Italian ships were sunk, but one cruiser and several destroyers had been damaged. The British had to endure several hours of high-level bombing, but these attacks were no more successful than the previous ones. Cunningham might have missed an unexpected opportunity, but still, his aggressiveness paid dividends. On the last day of July, hurricanes were on their way to Malta as reinforcements. They had left the carrier Argus, which left it vulnerable the Italians did not seize the opportunity to go after the Argus. Besides more high-altitude bombing, the Italian fleet never left port. Malta was strengthened, and Cunningham cleared the eastern basin of the Mediterranean. However, on land, 
the Italians were to have greater success. On July 4th, the Duke of Aosta launched simultaneous offensives against British frontier areas. He did so reluctantly as he admired the British and cultivated their ways. But, as the cousin of King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy, it was his duty. And yet the victories of these insignificant military areas would come with high Italian casualty rates. When Kassala in eastern Sudan near the Eritrean border was taken and the small British force pushed out, the invaders lost 117 men to the British 10. The same thing played out in other frontier posts in Sudan, at Karora on the Red Sea and at Galabat and Kermat further inland. The overwhelming Italian forces pushed out the British or native troops under British command, but again while suffering relatively high casualty rates. In Moyela, at the extreme northern border of Kenya, it took four Italian colonial battalions to evict the king's African rifles. The Italian victory over British Somaliland, which we have already covered, almost did not happen. The British government was set on abandoning the area, but as war came, Wavell decided this would be bad for morale. But what the commander Middle East could not predict was France leaving the war so soon. The advance lasted 16 days and ended on August 19th, with the British evacuation at Berbera. As can be imagined, Mussolini crowed loudly to the crowd standing below his balcony. All this was nice, but now that France was out, Mussolini wanted Egypt. He needed the oil and the Suez in his control. After all, he could read a map as well as the next man. And now he saw no reason why he couldn't have it. But Graziani, who replaced Balbo as the leader of the Italian 10th Army, started defending his inactivity right away. Their war of words was just getting started. Graziani stated straight away that his forces were nowhere near ready for a 350-mile advance across the waterless Naya Delta. Mussolini countered with, Okay, prepare then, but when the first German sets foot in southern Britain, you will move. Graziani agreed to this, but would cleverly use this condition for not advancing to great effect. Wavell's clashes with Churchill, meanwhile, were of a different nature. The Prime Minister wanted movement now, and unlike Graziani, Wavell equally desired to move, but he, as well as Air Marshal Longmore, were simply not ready with adequate equipment and support resources. And with the attack on the home island imminent, he knew that situation would not, could not change. So as replacement of equipment was not an option, it was down to careful husbanding and repair. As stated last time, O'Connor's tanks were moved back and the 7th Support Group under Brigadier Strafer got held the line in late July. Longmore, for his part, placed further restrictions on his aircraft's sortie rate. And attacks were only launched on important targets, if no other way could be found, to hit them. Back in London, Wavell and Longmore's equipment deficiencies were well known to the Cabinet Committee set up under Anthony Eden, Secretary of State for War. The committee's job was to advise the War Cabinet on issues in the Middle East. And near the end of July, the committee advised that Wavell come home to discuss the matter in greater detail. 
So, at the beginning of August, as the Battle of Britain was intensifying, Wavell, along with a representative of Air Marshal Longmore, met with the Chiefs of Staff and War Cabinet to explain his views. To the taciturn and efficient-speaking general, the situation was rather straightforward. With their limited men and materiel, their options were also limited. He would fall back from the Libyan-Egyptian border to Mersa Matru, about one-third of the way from the border. There, he had enough water, stocks, and was at the end of a road and railway. A defense in depth was already being worked on. He, in the form of General O'Connor, would be ready. Graziani, their adversary on the other hand, would have to cross the desert, extend his supply line, and make do as best he could while trying to penetrate the British line. Not a recipe for success. And to Wavell's thinking, he just couldn't see the Italians coming at him with any kind of zeal. His real fear was German reinforcements, i.e. German infantry, armor, and aircraft. Added to all this was the total lack of any detailed information on Graziani's dispositions, due to the policy of not provoking Mussolini before war was declared. For example, Wavell stressed German forces could be landed at Tripoli or Benghazi, and the British wouldn't even know of it but for a stroke of luck. If the war cabinet wanted him to go on the offensive, something he was keen to do, he would need the following. The RAF to receive modern aircraft. The 7th Armored as well as the 4th Indian Division brought up to strength with the appropriate equipment, i.e. modern tanks, field artillery, and anti-tank guns. The Australian and New Zealand Divisions in Palestine in training there equally equipped. And considering the large, more modern Italian Air Force, a large number of light and heavy anti-aircraft guns, and of course, ample ammunition for all of these weapons. This litany was met with frowns and consternation, not at Wavell, but at the thought of British-made weapons since the outbreak of the war. During the phony war from September 1940 until April 1941, British war production focused on arming the BEF that was to cross the Channel and fight alongside the French. But most of that equipment was either destroyed or abandoned at Dunkirk. Now production was again working furiously to rearm those same men who survived and made it back home. But their job was to prepare for the impending invasion. It's hard to imagine sending arms to the Middle East when they might be needed right outside your doorstep. Still, Eden's committee and the War Cabinet both agreed that Wavell's command needed equipping, despite the threat at home. They agreed on three tank battalions, one of them being the new heavy infantry tanks called Matildas, and enough ammunition to go on the offensive. But now came a diversion within this sense of urgency and military practicality between Wavell and his political master, Churchill alluded to at the opening of this episode. The question at hand was, should the invaluable tanks be sent through the dangerous Mediterranean, past Italy, or should they be sent around the relatively safe route around Africa? Churchill, being Churchill, knew his own mind, and without hesitation, minuted on August 13th to the First Sea Lord, 
It seems extremely likely that if the Germans are frustrated in an invasion of Great Britain or do not choose to attempt it, they will have a great need to press and aid the Italians to attack Egypt. The month of September must be regarded as critical in the extreme. In these circumstances, it is very wrong that we should attempt to send one armored brigade around the Cape, thus making sure that during September it can play no part either in the defense of Egypt or England. But Wavell saw the situation differently and felt that the risk was not worth taking at this time. His view was that if the ships were sunk, it could take months to replace all that equipment. Clearly, that wouldn't do anyone any good except for the access. He recommended going around the Cape and knowing replacements were en route, he could then use his existing weapons more aggressively. This balanced approach did not sit well with Churchill, who was itching to strike at the Italians. It must be remembered that he, like most of the home island, had to suffer through daily and now nightly bombing from the Luftwaffe. As far as the Prime Minister was concerned, it was time to hit back, and this talk of cautious undertaking liked him not. Vice Admiral Cunningham did not help Wavell, although it was probably not his intention to do this, by declaring his view that if the tanks were that important, it was worth the potential naval losses. So a compromise was struck. The tank convoy, named Apology, was to sail for Gibraltar. There it would join up with other vessels heading to Cunningham as reinforcements. That group was codenamed HATS. It was made up of the carrier Illustrious, the battleship Valiant, with two new anti-aircraft cruisers. When the two convoys came together in the western Mediterranean, if an Italian invasion seemed likely, they would press on together through the Mediterranean. If not, then Apology would then sail around the Cape, thus guaranteeing its arrival, well, as much as possible, in a war. Churchill approved this plan on August 15th, the day Luftflotte 5, based out of Norway, got their nose bloodied and would never again operate on a large scale during the Battle of Britain. The day, as Churchill put it, henceforth everything north of the Wash was safe by day. So Wavell got some of what he wanted with promises of another armored division in a few months. The Royal Air Force in Egypt got something out of this as well. Besides promises of modern aircraft, their current fighters could not keep up with the faster Italian bombers. They were also to receive some American-built Glenn Martin reconnaissance planes that were on their way to France. Now they would be on their way to Egypt. But looking at the bigger picture, for Wavell. His trip, politically speaking, was a failure. Churchill, due to his personality, was used to getting his way. And if not, he had an assortment of tricks in his bag to maybe charm or browbeat someone until he did get his way. But that did not work here. Here, he ran into the brick wall that was Wavell's character and set countenance. Churchill wanted action as did Wavell, when the men were ready and success looked like the outcome. Otherwise, why bother? Wavell saw the Prime Minister as just another politician and didn't see the need to ingratiate himself to this civilian. He did not detect any superior military judgment emanating from behind the cigar smoke. 
Wavell knew his job and how he was going to do it. It was the government's job to give him the resources to make it so. What rubbed the Prime Minister the wrong way was mostly how Wavell was using his Rhodesian, South African, and East and West African troops in Kenya. Churchill wanted a little British pushback on the Italian troops in Italian Somaliland and Abyssinia. But the reality was the men there were not ready. They were not equipped, and it was the wrong time for local action. And Wavell knew that any unprepared action would probably lead to a retreat or a rout. His reply was, It all looks so simple to them and others on a small-scale map. The most bitter of the discussions came during the night of August 12th. Churchill, Wavell, and Eden went round and round from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Still, no progress was made between the two stubborn men. The next morning, Eden found Wavell waiting at his office. He made it clear that if the Prime Minister did not have confidence in him and his decisions, then someone else should be appointed. But Churchill was not giving up on trying to control Wavell. On August 15th, Churchill told Eden that the general should stay another day. But Eden replied that Wavell was doing no good here. Either replace him or release him. To wit, Churchill replied, who could he replace him with? Eden's answer was General Auchinleck. Churchill grunted agreement, but both men felt that there was not enough evidence of ineptitude or wrongdoing to warrant a change right now. Morale would suffer. Churchill later wrote, While I was not in full agreement with General Wavell's use of the resources at his disposal, I thought it best to leave him in command. But that was clearly not the case. When Wavell was back in Cairo, there waited for him instructions from the Prime Minister in great detail, how to use his men and others coming to him. Wavell replied, It showed clearly that Winston did not trust me to run my own show and was set on his own ideas. Honestly, despite Churchill's experience and knowledge, he did go too far here. This level of interfering did not happen in any other theater, but Winston can easily be forgiven in his desire to strike at those who would visit harm on British possessions while the home island fought for its survival. On August 25th, the ill-named convoy Apology, considering the tension between Churchill and Wavell, reached Gibraltar, and from what could be ascertained, Graziani had no immediate intention of invading Egypt. So, Apology went around the Cape, and Operation Hat sailed through the central Mediterranean, completely unchallenged, and joined Cunningham. Churchill, again being Churchill, could not help saying, I told you so. In fact, Graziani had no intention of moving anywhere, anytime soon. But Mussolini did. And on September 7th, Il Duce told the marshal, no more excuses, no more waiting, sea lion or no sea lion, advance or be replaced. So, early on September 13th, the Italian 10th Army invaded Egypt. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, I just want to thank some people who have made donations. Let's see here. Um, Alex A. Fitchberg from Wisconsin, um, Michael B. Hampshire from UK, 
Robert P. Torrance from California, Adam C. from Queensland, Australia, sorry I had to do that, Michael V. from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Joseph P. LaGrange from Illinois, Hominy G. Charleston from South Carolina, hey, I'm from South Carolina too, Uh, let's see here, Mark T. London from UK, Jeff Victoria from Australia, or Jeff F. from Victoria, Australia, sorry Jeff, Tim K. from Barnegat, New Jersey. Sorry, Tim, I'm not sure. James Warwickshire from UK. And oh, I think he bought a CD back in uh, when I sold CDs. And Phil Columbia from Tennessee. Thank you all very much for your donations or becoming a member. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Take care, everyone.